You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. This week, a couple of things are looking just a little bit different than usual thanks to COVID-19. The first is this episode of Radio Ed. Instead of recording face-to-face in our studio at the University of Denver, I set up in my home office with my laptop propped up on a tower of chairs and boxes and chatted via Zoom with today's expert, Sam Kamen. The second is the annual celebration of 420 here in Colorado, which has typically drawn huge crowds since even before the days of legalization. Back then, folks came together to protest the prohibition of marijuana, and now they come together to celebrate one of the state's and arguably the country's budding industries. Of course, marijuana is still illegal under federal law, but 11 states have deemed the drug fit for recreational use. Colorado, Radio Ed's home base, was the nation's legalization guinea pig, and since sale number one, we've learned quite a bit. Sam Kamen, a pioneer in the field of marijuana law and a member of the state's original marijuana task force, dialed in to share some successes, remaining challenges, and whether or not he thinks federal legalization might actually be on its way. Well, first of all, thank you for coming on today. We really appreciate having you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So dispensaries were deemed by the Colorado governor in the last couple weeks, um, an essential business. So can you tell me a little bit about why you suspect marijuana was deemed an essential business and what impact it can really have on Colorado's economy? Sure. I mean, yeah, there was that funny few hours there where uh, it looked like the governor was going to close both liquor stores and marijuana stores. And, uh, you know, almost immediately the lines formed around the block for both of those and people were not socially distancing. And uh, I I think someone uh, very, very quickly got uh, got his ear and, and convinced him that was not the, the best idea. I think it was the mayor that made that decision initially. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that it's probably been deemed essential uh, for the same reason that alcohol was deemed essential, not uh, necessarily because it's necessary for life, but that uh, it's one of those things that is going to make uh, this time easier for a lot of people. Um, you know, there, there are uh, certainly downsides to uh, making alcohol and marijuana available during this time. But I think the, the quick decision was uh, having a black market reemerge for those uh, for those businesses was not uh, was not the best idea in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So in having the dispensaries open through all of this, what kind of impact does that have on the local economy? Well, you know, there are a lot of jobs associated with the, the marijuana business. Um, and, uh, this means that those, uh, jobs, at least for, for now, or most of them will be, uh, pretty secure. I haven't seen good data on whether sales are about where they were beforehand. I'm sure they had a big spike, uh, on, on the day that it looked like they were going to be closed. I saw some alcohol store, uh, a manager say he wished the, the mayor would announce every Friday that, uh, he was going to close <laughs> all the stores. It would be really good for business. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know exactly that things are status quo ante with that, but, uh, I think it definitely uh, means that that at least those people in those in those businesses that are remaining open are going to not be displaced like so many others are in Colorado. Sure, absolutely. So Colorado was the first state to legalize recreational marijuana, and I kind of want to go back to those early days and get an idea of what some of those initial key concerns were and what Colorado's strategy was for tackling those. Sure. So the concern was that marijuana is a drug that's less uh, dangerous on a lot of different metrics than alcohol, and that it should be treated uh, no more severely than alcohol is. So 
Amendment 64, which passed here in 2012, was subtitled a, a bill to uh, regulate marijuana like alcohol. And, you know, I think that had a lot of resonance for a lot of people that based on their own experience or based on what they were uh, able to, to understand, um, it was both less physically addicting and less damaging to, to people than alcohol and that its continued um, prohibition was creating all sorts of problems. So um, I, I think those were the principal problems that the amendment was designed to, uh, to address. So Colorado legalized marijuana, as you said, through a constitutional amendment. Other states have taken different routes. What have other states learned from Colorado? Why have they gone different directions with this? What does that look like outside of Colorado? Sure. So we were first, and we have um, some ideas that have really uh, influenced what happened in a mm -hmm. lot of other states. I think principally uh, the seed-to-sale tracking idea is one that every, just about every state, I think every state has adopted the idea that um, you know, a, a plant is required to be monitored from the time it sprouts roots to the time it's sold uh, in order to uh, ensure that uh, all the marijuana that's being produced is being sold on the legal, regulated, and taxed marketplace instead of on the, the black marketplace. Um, but, you know, other, uh, other uh, ideas that, that we had have not been uh, carried out in a lot of places. So Colorado has what I call sort of a comp uh, compulsory licensing system. If you meet the criteria, you get a license. So if you can show that you are a Colorado resident and you have a clean uh, criminal history, uh, that you have local approval, you can get a, a license from the state to uh, grow or sell marijuana. In other states, those uh, licenses are rationed, sort of in the way uh, taxi cab medallions have been rationed in New York City. They only have so many, uh, and that makes each of them worth quite a lot. Um, and, you know, so I, I think there are advantages to, to both systems, though I think on, on balance, our system makes a lot more sense than, mm -hmm. uh, than some of those. Gotcha. Are there any, I guess, benefits to having done it through a constitutional amendment? Is that harder to overturn than it might be for states who have gone like a legislation route? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the, the principal reason that was done was to make it harder for a legislature or governor who disagreed with the policy to undo what the voters had asked for. Sure. So overall... What's your assessment of the job Colorado did? It's been several years now, I guess. What, what does that look like from your perspective? Do you think we've done well? I do think we've done well. I mean, I think it depends what you're measuring. Sure. Uh, you know, the, on January 1st, 2014, Colorado became the first place anywhere in the world where marijuana was being sold legally in stores um, in a way that sort of was legal from, from start to finish, that you know, people point to Amsterdam or point to other places, but... Um, you know, in, in Amsterdam, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, marijuana that's sold uh, isn't isn't completely legal. That there's no lawful way to produce it. There's no lawful way to import it. Uh, a lot of it is done with a wink and a nod. Here, the idea really was, if a person wants to comply with regulations from start to finish, is there a way they can do this in a way that is completely compliant with state law? And we were the first place anywhere in the world where that happened. So on that level, at least, uh, things were were a success. Right. Uh, the Colorado voters asked for uh, this first in the world regulatory system to be put in place and it happened and it functions and there was marijuana for sale and people came and bought it and the feds didn't shut it down. So, you know, on that level, you know, sort of that most basic level, it worked. Um, in terms of policy outcomes, I think there, there are places we could quibble. Um, a lot of people are going to say that marijuana became too cheap in Colorado, that uh, that makes it too accessible to kids, that makes it too attractive to export to other states. 
Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the worst fears that both opponents and skeptics had uh, for marijuana legalization haven't materialized here. Great. So this is still relatively new. And in other states, it's way, way newer. It's still completely fresh. So what are some of the kind of marijuana industry frontiers that we still might have to deal with down the line? So there's a bunch of, of challenges that remain. Mm -hmm. um, all of them are based on the fact that marijuana remains illegal at the federal level. Sure. Uh, that means that banking services are very difficult for people in the industry to access. Uh, that means that taxes are paid at something that looks like a 70 or 80 percent uh, clip. Um, you know, in addition to things like intellectual property being unavailable, people who uh, use marijuana um, risk losing their job in a lot of places. Um, so it's still, there are still lots of tensions between state and federal law. So even, no matter how well regulated it is at the state level, there's only so much that the states can do so long as it remains illegal federally. Sure. So what does a state gain from, from doing this? Yeah. So, you know, I, I get this question a lot and what I usually tell states when, or even uh, different, different countries, I, I testified in Canada when they were considering legalization there, which they ultimately did. Um, you know, you shouldn't do this to raise money that a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be the sort of double win that we won't spend money on law enforcement anymore and we'll get all this tax revenue. And the truth is that the regulatory regime is pretty expensive um, and that in addition, you're still going to have to spend uh, law enforcement dollars. You want to make sure that all the marijuana that's being produced and sold is being produced and sold consistent with the, the regulations. You need to force all the illegal purveyors and producers into a regulated and taxed marketplace. And, and that requires you know, a fair amount of money. Yeah. Um, so the reason to do it is to undo the negative effects of prohibition. You know, that, that it's true that uh, prohibition in alcohol prohibition in the United States in the 1920s uh, reduced alcohol consumption, but it did so at a really high cost. And uh, that cost in terms of uh, you know, the encouragement of criminal gangs, in terms of uh, contempt for the law, in terms of the, uh, the uh, disproportionate impact of the laws on certain communities, we see all of that with marijuana prohibition as well. So legalization is a way to ameliorate some of those harms. Okay, so some some folks were against this because they expected that it would make consumption of marijuana go up, especially among kids. They were also concerned about issues like addiction. So I'm curious if any of these things have materialized. You know, again, we, we have now just a little over six years of uh, legal sales in Colorado. So we only have six data points. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's still a little early to know. I think that um, some of the best data that we have comes from the Healthy Kids Colorado survey, which is a, a statewide survey that's done, which shows that uh, fortunately among uh, young people, the use of marijuana has not gone up or has not gone up in fiscally meaningful ways. I think the data with regard to young adults is probably less positive. That is, the, the, there are some indications that um, people in young adulthood are using marijuana more often. And, you know, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks that marijuana is a completely benign substance and that uh, there are no harms associated with sure. its use. For me, it's about balancing those harms against the harms of, of prohibition. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on going forward. Right. And Colorado also recently decriminalized psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Um, do you think that the legalization of marijuana played a role in allowing that to happen? Is that a positive or a negative thing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, whether you're a proponent of, of changes in the drug law or, or uh, an opponent, you can certainly see a pattern, right? That we had medical marijuana, then we had uh, adult use marijuana, then we had psilocybin. And I think people will push for the, the decriminalization of other drugs. I, I know people who push for the decriminalization of all drugs the way uh, it was done in Portugal and other places. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we'll, uh, I think, legalization, regulation, commercial sales, um, those things work better for some products than others. I don't think anyone is going to advocate for a commercial market for heroin. Um, we, we've seen with, with uh, the uh, opiates how, how dangerous those products are when they're sold in a, in a you know, legal marketplace, and I don't, I don't think anyone wants to see that happen. So I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about how the legalization of marijuana in Colorado and in other states has influenced mass incarceration in the United States, which is obviously a big challenge for us. Um, so has the spread of legal marijuana changed the way mass incarceration operates? Have we seen people get out of prison because of this? Sure, it's a great question. And you know, I think a common misperception is that there are a lot of people sort of rotting away in prison for minor marijuana offenses. And I think, you know, by and large, it's really just not true. And, and I, I did, didn't mean to attribute that view to you, but I sure, think sure. You, uh, you see it in, um, uh, even in popular uh, literature, the idea that, oh, the war on drugs caused mass incarceration. And it certainly contributed to mass incarceration, but it's not the cause of mass incarceration. You know, um, even if we released all nonviolent non people from our prisons and jails, we'd still have uh, around a million people uh, incarcerated. Um, so, uh, you know, the, um, the, the role that marijuana plays and that drug uh, enforcement plays is in bringing people into the criminal justice system and creating a record for them and making them known to the police. Sure. Um, and that obviously has a disproportionate impact on certain communities, communities of color. Um, in, in a way that, um, you know, sort of has long-term effects for those people. It's not that they're in prison, it's that they have criminal convictions which keep them uh, from uh, getting jobs, from getting meaningful employment, from getting certain housing, certain federal benefits, uh, and, and then they exacerbate uh, later uh, criminal convictions. So, of course, the, role, the war on drugs plays a role in that, but, it, but to say that it caused it, I think, is, is overblown. So on, in that same vein, Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, she said in 2014, so two years after Colorado legalized, uh, 40 years of impoverished black kids getting prison time for selling weed and their families and futures destroyed, and now white men are planning to get rich doing precisely the same thing. So I'm just curious... Going off of kind of what we were talking about before, what kind of impact do you think that this has had, particularly on communities of color? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a really good point. Um, and you know, you the the argument is often made, right, that sure. we need to uh, release anybody who was ever convicted of drug dealing because we've legalized drug dealing. You know, the that's not entirely the that parallel is not perfect. That the people who are engaged in uh, the marijuana business in a place like Colorado are regulated and taxed um, business people. They right. are uh, selling only to adults if they're complying with the law. They are, um, you know, not selling other drugs. And for people who, in the past, have been convicted under the war on drugs, that's not true. Um, that is not to say that there are no problems with the fact that the new marijuana industry is largely white. Uh, and war on drugs disproportionately impact the communities of color. Those things are sort of undeniable. 
Um, what it means is that as we, as people push for uh, changes in federal and state marijuana laws, that people are now insisting that 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 going along with that is a requirement that uh, you know uh, uh, social equity and uh, racial equity be a part of that process. Sure. So it's something that the the industry cares about and is paying is paying attention to and is aware of. Absolutely, and I think that um, you know when Colorado legalized in two thousand and twelve. Um, it wasn't all clear that we were going to be allowed to go forward with that regulation. It right. wasn't all clear that uh, the federal government wasn't going to come in and arrest people. So, you know, the idea that, oh, we're creating this windfall for certain people wasn't really on the radar screen. And the idea of um, the idea of social equity was not at the forefront. It very much is now. And you see uh, a real push um, or really a requirement that if there's going to be a change going forward, that, that social equity has to be a part of that conversation. So what do you think has, has caused that shift? Um, I, I think what's caused it is, um, you know, the change in the, the fact that this industry has succeeded, the fact that the federal government did not shut it down. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who, everyone who is involved in the marijuana business risks going to prison for the rest of their life. You know, this is still uh, a, a rapidly changing area of law. But as it's gone forward, and as we've seen, um, as we've seen the the federal government acquiesce to it, if this is an industry that's going to thrive, it should uh, be more. So you've talked a little bit about some of the challenges of being a dispensary owner and what getting involved in this business looks like. And I think. Uh, the perception was after it was legalized that a lot of people came to Colorado, moved here and thought, hey, we're going to get rich quick joining this new industry. So what are some of the realities of being a dispensary owner in Colorado? Let's see. I think the, uh, you know, the, the uh, degree of regulation is probably something that is una- that people are unaware of, that um, you know, compliance with regulations is expensive, complicated. Um, in addition, you know, the licensing fees um, and the startup costs are quite high. It's very difficult for people to raise capital. You can't get a bank loan, a small business loan, the way you can uh, for other kinds of business. So, you know, it's people think it's like growing lettuce, but you can but you can sell it for hundreds of dollars a pound. Really not. Yeah. So we've kind of danced around this topic of legalization at the federal level. Um, so I'm curious if you think that that is something that is possible in the foreseeable future. I think it will uh, depend a lot on the presidential election. I mean, right. Joe Biden was the one presidential candidate on the Democratic side who was not an enthusiastic supporter of marijuana legalization. But also, I think if the Democrats are in power in the legislatures or in Congress, um, it, it will be an impossible thing for them to uh, n- not to act on. Sure. That's really interesting. So if it is indeed legalized at the federal level, how does that change what's going on in the states? Well, it will make um, it it will make that conduct legal. It will make it safer for people. It will make it um, uh, it will eliminate problems like um, banking and tax that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also raises the specter of having a big marijuana industry that goes along with uh, big tobacco, big alcohol, big pharma, big agriculture. And I think people are really concerned about that, that, um, you know, you have, you're selling the substance, which I agree is less dangerous than 
uh, alcohol that still uh, has a potential for abuse, if you're marketing that with a uh, with a uh, profit motive and without the the restrictions that uh, federal illegality imposes, you have a real risk of some harms. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what those harms might look like from from big marijuana? Sure. I mean, industries like alcohol and tobacco um, get 80% of their profits from 20% of their users, mm -hmm. right? And they are constantly in the business of making sure that there is a new generation of people who will be uh, using their products and be loyal to their brand. Um, and that means marketing and targeting those people and making sure that they are consistent users. And, uh, you know, the problem users, the people who use uh, too much or more than they would like to, are the profit centers for these industries. So. Right. Uh, I think there's a real concern that that will be true with regard to marijuana as well. So economically, how would these kind of local dispensaries that have grown up all over the country, how would they fare if big marijuana became a reality? Sure. So right now you have marijuana being grown under lights in the middle of a big city here in Denver. Um, that's not an economical way for it to happen. Uh, it happens that way because uh, that's the way it was regulated here, that we originally didn't have uh, greenhouse or outdoor growing, um, but in a purely legal marketplace, um, you're going to see marijuana being grown very cheaply in those places where it grows most economically, and whether that's going to be Kentucky and Tennessee or the hills of, of California or the Central Valley of California. Um, you're not going to see marijuana being grown right. uh, by mom and pop stores in, in the middle of, of big American cities. Um, and you're going to see consolidation. You're going to see price drop. And mm -hmm. the price drop will make it uh, much easier and much more attractive for young people to get uh, access. Interesting. So we've kind of talked about how states have had this piecemeal approach to implementing the legalization of marijuana. Everybody has been able to do it their own way. Um, has that had any drawbacks? Would it have been better if we had all started at the same time under the same system? Yeah, I think the, the way we see that most is with the interstate transit of, of marijuana. Um, it is financially viable for uh, people who live in Oklahoma or Nebraska to drive to Colorado, buy marijuana lawfully from a store here, and then illegally take it back and sell it in Oklahoma and Nebraska where recreational marijuana is prohibited. And however well we regulate it here in Colorado, that's always going to be true, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they say that, uh, I, I like to quote a friend of mine who says that, you know, they, they say that our legalization is, is upsetting their prohibition, it's really their prohibition that's upsetting our legalization, <laughs> right. right? That we're as long as we don't agree across the border, uh, we're going to have uh, we're going to have cross-border uh, uh, sales be lucrative. And you know, even if there's legalization at the federal level, states may continue to to prohibit marijuana. You know, we saw dry counties. Uh, you know, long after prohibition went away, we may see dry states even after the federal government legalized. Hmm. Interesting. So. We, we kind of know about some of the things that have come out around the legalization of marijuana related to the economy and related to jobs and that sort of thing. But what are some of the things people don't think of that have been spurred by this? Have there been different medical outcomes or more research, these sort of things? You know, it's still hard to do good quality research on the medical benefits of marijuana while it remains illegal. The federal sure. government has relaxed uh, some of those regulations. But while it remains a Schedule One substance, it's quite difficult to do robust medical testing on, on marijuana. So I can't say that 
uh, our knowledge about its medicinal benefits has really risen that much since legalization has happened in the states. Um, you know, most of the research that's done on marijuana is being done overseas. It's Interesting. Being done in Israel and England and other uh, countries uh, where it's easier to do. So um, you know, while, while we are increasing our knowledge about it, we are not increasing our knowledge in a way that's likely of itself to lead to a change in federal policy. Hmm. Are there other areas where the the fact that it's still illegal on the federal level is holding holding us back? Yeah, I mean, so there are lots of, I, I talk a lot about the constant, what I call the collateral consequences of federal illegality. So, um, you know, Illinois was the most recent uh, state to, to legalize. And just before legalization happened in Illinois, the Chicago Housing Authority sent out uh, a notice that says, you know, even though this is going to be legal in the state of Illinois, you can't have it in uh, subsidized housing in the, in the city of Chicago. And the reason was those uh, there's federal funding of that program, and they were worried they would lose their federal funding if they permitted marijuana to be used in public housing. Huh. Um, I mentioned employment, um, parental rights can be put at risk if someone is either working in that industry or, or using marijuana rather recreationally or medically. Uh, you know, the, the, everything from, from real estate to uh, employment, as I mentioned, to insurance, to bankruptcy, all of these things are uh, impacted by the fact that in the eyes of uh, federal law enforcement officials, all marijuana conduct in every state remains illegal. Sure. So without a doubt, that federal legalization would make a massive impact for many people. It would. And, you know, no, it's not the case. No one uh, that I'm aware of who is a compliant state uh, licensee has been prosecuted by the federal government. So the real risk now is not people going to prison, but these other what I call collateral consequences. Absolutely. So on, on a slightly lighter note, I'm seeing marijuana factoring into the public imagination in a whole new way. It's, it's much more accepted. BarkBox is putting out a 420 box with um, a little bong plush toy for dogs and that sort of thing. So how has the cultural situation for marijuana changed? I mean, it's, it, you know, people react in different ways to this, but, you know, uh, uh, people have talked about people coming out of the marijuana closet, right? Sure. And, um, you know, the idea is that views about homosexuality really changed when more people came out and people realized that their uh, aunt or uncle or dentist or doctor or lawyer uh, was, was a gay person and that, you know, th those people were no different from, from anyone else. There's been a real, um, I don't know whether it's a push or just a, a, a sort of evolution of people being more open about their marijuana use. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you certainly see it in on, on the commercial side, um, but I think that it is sort of becoming more accepted at, you know, just people willing to, to say, oh, you know, we have to keep the marijuana stores open because that's just a, as much a part of, of life and quarantine as uh, you know, being able to have a glass of wine. Right. I guess that kind of perfectly depicts what's happening. The fact that the governor of Colorado decided that marijuana was an essential industry. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that that was, you're right, pretty telling. To learn more about Colorado's Amendment 64 or Sam Kamen's work, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radio ed. James Swearingen arranged our theme music. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. Lauren Fultenberg contributed research for today's episode. And I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer, today's sound engineer, and host. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.